0: You're listening to the Monash Arts Podcast. The high school administration didn't like it when we took the moratorium into the schools. It bugs them to see the kids that they are training for their society turn around and question the values of that society. A lot of the times when young people are talked about it's about as being sort of future citizens or future voters and that is significant it's significant how young people today what they'll do in the future but it's also significant what they do now So my name is Leslie Pruitt I'm senior lecturer in politics and international relations and I'm based here in the Gender Peace and Security Focus Program in the School of Social Sciences In my research I was really interested uh, with young people in the different ways that young women and young men would get involved. So whether or how it affected whether they participate in violence and uh, whether they would participate in peace building. So different expectations that are often there for boys and girls and how programs can think about effectively engaging them in ways that's respectful and inclusive for everybody. Monash GPS, or our Gender, Peace, and Security Focus initiative, is a recently started initiative and it's engaging several researchers from here across Monash doing research at the intersection of gender, peace, and security. So people are doing, you know, all different types of work. My colleague Katrina Liku and I are doing a research partnership with the Global YWCA funded by DFAT. And through that, we're looking at, at the Asia-Pacific region in particular and looking at young women's leadership, the different roles young women can take on. And through this program that's been funded through Australian Development Aid, uh, looking at different approaches to Uh, young women's leadership training to understand what's effective or what's not, what can be adapted, and what can we take away and learn from that, and what kind of impact does it have when young women have that uh, opportunity to take on leadership. For this sort of research, uh, you know, again, we're working in partnership with this global NGO, so it's our hope, uh, of course, that we'll be able to help uh, feedback to creating effective Practice effective policy, you know, to give useful information back to DFAT, for example, about, you know, the project that they're funding to let them know what, what is good, uh, what they need to invest in, what they need to perhaps add some investment in if it's not there, you know, to really communicate between the policymakers and the, the practitioners in that sense. And with the practitioners, we work with them, you know, on a variety of things with the YWCA. We, have been working with an intern here and creating fact sheets for the different uh, locations that the young women leaders can use. We've worked together to create surveys to deliver and distribute at the end of the training so they can see, again, what's been effective or what could be improved to get baseline data, you know, about what did people know, what did they know after, and maybe what are some things that they might still need to have in the future. So I think sometimes it's just really simple things of getting young people to think about who feels comfortable and welcome in a space and why that is and how you can support each other so that everybody feels comfortable and welcome. I think a lot of it's to do with gender norms or sort of expectations of women and men and how boys and girls are are raised. I think boys, gender norms tell boys that they should be strong, they should be protectors and these are sort of stereotypes that are introduced to them in various ways in their day to day lives where it's often sort of the, an opposite side for the way that girls are, are told to be, but I think both women and men, and boys and girls, can be strong, can be protectors, can be nurturers, can be caring, and I think, you know, the best and most effective peacekeepers will be those who can take on board all those sort of attributes in a way that's that's effective and helpful in their environments. When it comes to the peacekeeping side, you know, more the U.N. actually deploying peacekeepers to sort of conflict or rather post-conflict environments, I realized that we didn't really cover much to do with gender and that most of the research around peacekeepers was about male peacekeepers and they are most peacekeepers still. The numbers change on a monthly basis. but. When it comes to military peacekeepers, about 1% to 3% are women. And when it comes to police peacekeepers, it's usually something like 7 to 10%. So they're both quite small range. But the UN uh, has been making a lot of effort over the past, particularly the last 16 years, since UN Security Council Resolution 1325 was passed in the year 2000. And that was a big event because it was the first time the Security Council said that actually having gender equity, that men and women, boys and girls, can participate equally in peace-building and peace processes across the board and decision-making around reducing and ending conflict, they said that was essential for sustainable peace. And so since then, the UN has continued to develop resolutions along that track in the Women, Peace, and Security agenda, and they have been calling through that to get more women involved in peacekeeping. Liberia, a nation scarred by 14 years of brutal civil war. Infamous in recent years for child soldiers and rampant sexual violence, the country is slowly trudging towards stability, helped by the United Nations, which is here on a peacekeeping mission. Assisting the UN operation is a special unit from India, an all-female police contingent it was starting to become very clear that gender was a significant factor in how people experience conflict and insecurity, you know, that that women were facing different situations than men. And the UN had made this call for more representation of women as peacekeepers. And so it was very interesting then that this, you know, it it came out in the news. This was in early 2007 that India was deploying an all-female formed police unit, so a unit of peacekeepers that was made up of all women. And they were deployed uh, from India to Liberia at that time. Liberia had just been going through a fourteen-year-long civil war, so it was a quite, you know, challenging uh, environment, a quite challenging task they had in front of them. And they were originally to be deployed for six months, but they were seen as such a success that they actually extended their deployment to one year. And after that, they decided they would have a new rotation come in. And so every year then, up until this year, a new rotation came in. And constantly then, Liberia has had, up until February this year, an all-female peacekeeping unit. Within months of their arrival in Liberia, the number of women applying to work in the Liberian National Police tripled. So it just had this almost immediate significant impact that women said, "Oh." I could do that job, you know, and they were there, they were training local police, women and men, uh, doing patrols, Uh, they did guarding the foreign ministry, special guard for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the head of Liberia, and just really there being recognized for the good work that they were doing. And so it was really significant having that visible presence of women, uh, showing that they are able to be strong, capable, well-trained protectors and also, you know, that they can do that in a way uh, that's not at odds with expectations of women in a way, that it could be accepted and recognized that women could be there as women doing it. I was really interested in some quite basic questions about how did this unit come about, why did it come about? What were people expecting from it and what actually happened? Because I thought it was such an interesting, you know, and unique approach that had not been, you know, documented at that level. So that's what I was trying to find out. And uh, what I found was when I went to the UN, there's actually very little institutional memory. So I was asking people, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And, and people didn't know. You know, so there was the police advisor at the UN at the time he was taking a lot of initiative to try to recruit more and and make support for recruiting more women, and he was talking to some folks in the Indian Permanent Mission to the UN, and they mentioned to him, oh, you know, we we actually have uh, all women's units in India. And so then that started me down the track of researching that as well. So India is known for having the first all-women police stations in the world. And they've had those since the 1970s. They were introduced by Indira Gandhi. Uh, There's now over 500 around India. And they've also had for quite some time these all-women units from the Central Reserve Police Force. And those really came about to a large extent because of Indian women's activism and advocating and claiming their rights and saying, we want our cases to be heard, we want them to be prosecuted, we want police to be responsive. And this was seen as a way to address that, that women police would respond to the claims and that they could go in and report in an all-women environment in which they felt you know, safe to do so and they felt that their claims were being heard and were being addressed. So in this way this has been really an Indian initiative that has been you know transported if you will into a global environment through their deployment in the UN mission As a young person I was really interested in politics and social change and I was very much thinking I was going to go to law school and that eventually I'd like to run for office and do all of these things. And I sort of took some steps in that direction, I did a lot of courses that would have prepared me for law school and I worked in a law office for a few years and then I worked in Congress for a little while before I moved to Australia. But from having those experiences, I really learned a lot about that formal side and the processes, but I realized that actually for me I would enjoy more a sort of different approach to doing things with my skills and abilities. And so I quite like teaching. I enjoy it. And through doing my master's on that rotary scholarship, I found out that I really enjoyed doing research in this area. I had done some research before, you know, I'd done an honors, an honors thesis in the US before I came here but it was that having the chance to do sort of a bigger research project on something that was of, you know, bigger question in this sort of global environment and looking at creative aspects and those sorts of things that made me think, oh, maybe I'd like to do this, you know, in the longer term and just see what happens and this is sort of what happened. to do postgraduate research, one of the most important original things is to find a topic that you can stay engaged with, something that's going to interest you because in a way your research project or your thesis is sort of becoming possibly your best friend or possibly your frenemy. You're going to spend a lot of time with it, you know, over the course of the year, over the course of the years in the case of if you're doing a PhD. So it's really worth taking the time to think about what is a significant topic, what's a significant question that actually also interests you that's something that you can stay engaged in and the biggest thing i think for being a researcher is about having the capacity to remain curious and to always keep staying curious in that sense and that there's always more to learn